as they're getting out of here, uh, if you would take your copy of God's Word, and we are going to the book of Hosea. And if you don't have a Bible with you, or if you don't have one on your phone, uh, we have some back here on our resource table, so please feel free to grab one of those. And if you need one, take it home with you, let it be our gift to you today. Book of Hosea, if you do not know, we are in a series right now, a teaching series on uh, 12 books in the Old Testament that are historically known as the Minor Prophets. We're calling the series, da-da-da, the Hidden Prophets. Um, and right now, uh, we are uh, about to begin our third of these books. Uh, the first two that we looked at were uh, Jonah and Amos. We just wrapped up Amos this last week. Today, we'll start Hosea. And for most people, even people who've grown up in the church, who've been around things of the Bible their whole life, these are largely unknown and unexplored areas of the scripture for many people. It's like, I, I know those books are there, and, and I can maybe like recite them in some kind of a song I learned when I was a kid, but in terms of what's actually in those books, what happens there, uh, does, it, does it have any relevance to my life? No clue whatsoever. So we're digging into these things because... They are the word of God, but also because we think of the, they're of great relevance to us. And as we've seen, uh, this in, in so many ways is pointing us to Christ. It's not just telling us about things that were going on in the history of Israel and in the lives of Hebrew people during the day and age when these books were written. It's also pointing ahead to a great king that is to come. So throughout this study, we've not only been learning about the minor prophets and about Israel and Judah in the era of the divided kingdom, and as I say almost every week, just so we're refreshed on history, this is a period of time in which the people of Israel are split into two groups. The tribes that are in the northern region geographically have split off and have become simply the nation of Israel or what's sometimes known as Samaria. And then the tribes that remain in the south, which is where Jerusalem is, uh, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah, it's simply called the kingdom of Judah. And all of this is called the divided kingdom. So if you hear me refer to the divided kingdom, that's what I'm talking about. If I refer to Israel, I'm talking about these tribes that are in the north. And what we said is, and we've been saying this throughout Amos, is Israel and Judah, as they're separated, they ultimately both are conquered by military outsiders. For Israel, it's the Assyrians, they come in and wipe them out, scatter them to the wind. Later, several decades later, it's the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, who come in and exile the people of Judah and basically kidnap all of them and take them away to Judah. So we've been learning about all of this history, and, and that's going to continue as we get into Hosea today. But we've also been learning about how to read prophetic literature. How do we read the prophets? We've explored the nature of prophecy, the way that it's used in these books, and we've also been doing this in chronological order of events as opposed to the order that the books are presented in the Old Testament. And as you've probably picked up on, because most of us in this room are non-Jews and most of us really do not have like a robust grasp on Jewish history, it can be very difficult to just like drop in on one of these books, right? Just with no context, 
uh, just, just dropping in and, and trying to figure out what's going on can be really tough. And that's why we've been going this, at this in chronological order of events rather than in the order that the Bible presents it. And it's because it just helps us keep track of what's going on. And it helps us remember that in the scheme of history, these people that we're talking about are not just characters. Like they're actual people, real people in real places, inhabiting real points in history. And in order to understand the prophets, you really need to have a basic understanding of their world and their cultural situation. And you can't divorce them from their worlds. If you divorce them from the world that they're writing into, then you, then you lose their message. You don't understand what they're really talking about. And to that end, you can't just arbitrarily pull out their words and try to apply them to your life because that doesn't really work either. Uh, a famous example of this is the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah at one point wrote a letter to the exiled people of Judah who are carried away to Babylon. He writes a letter to them in the book of Jeremiah, and he famously says, and this is the Lord speaking through him, he famously says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, if we're reading the Bible contextually, we recognize that those words weren't originally written to us or about us, were they? No, that was the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Judah at a specific time in human history, in a specific instance where they had been carried away from their home to a land that was not their own. And God is speaking to them through Jeremiah saying, even though you're in a season of exile right now, there's good news because I have great plans for you in the future. And eventually, the Persians come in and overtake the Babylonians, and the people are allowed to return to Jerusalem and start rebuilding their land. And so there's a very specific sense in which Jeremiah spoke those words, and there's a very specific fulfillment of those words as well. Now, if you, if you pull out from there, there is a sense in which a statement like that is true for all of us in Christ, right? That, that through Christ, like God has plans to prosper us and God has plans for us to have a, a future hope in Christ. But does that mean that nothing's ever going to go wrong in our lives? No. Does that mean that we're never going to experience suffering in our lives? No. Does that mean that God wants to give us money and wealth? No. Does that mean that God wants to give us material possessions? No, it doesn't, right? So, so you can't just pull out the words of a prophet and like put them up on your bathroom mirror and make them your like morning mantra, you know, because, because it doesn't work that way. And so we've been exploring all of that. And, and with that in mind, like a statement like that, as we enter into the book of Hosea today, Guys, we're entering into a strange world in Hosea. And, and, and it's a world where God not only wants to use a prophet to speak his word, because that's what prophets do. They declare the word of the Lord. But, but with a guy like Hosea, God doesn't only want Hosea to speak his word. God also wants the suffering of the prophet's life to declare the word of the Lord. And the bold, crass, kind of out front statement that God wants Hosea's life to declare is this. Israel, you are a whore, but I love you anyway. 
despite who you are and what you've done. Let's look at it. Hosea chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, Not My People, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. The word of the Lord. All right. So what do we do with all this? Uh, let's start with a little bit of background here, and then we'll turn to the text itself. Uh, Hosea is a contemporary of Amos, who we just finished. He's probably writing something like 10 to 20 years after the time of Amos, and he is speaking into the exact same cultural situation that Amos was speaking into. It is Israel, the northern kingdom, at this time. Um, he's declaring the word of the Lord during the reign of the same king that Amos was speaking to, and that is a king known as Jeroboam II. And as we've said, this was a period of great wealth and prosperity for Israel. The Assyrians, who ultimately would overtake them at this time, are occupied with other military matters. They are not coming after Israel, and so the land is flourishing. They have power. They have money. People are living lives of luxury, as we saw in the book of Amos. But it's also a time in which they've abandoned God. They've abandoned the worship of Yahweh. They've abandoned the law of God that he handed down through Moses, things like the Ten Commandments. And they've taken on worshiping all of these other gods, gods that have been continual temptations for the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. They've given themselves over to worshiping them as well. With Amos, God sent a man from the southern kingdom of Judah to the north to declare his word. But with Hosea, God sends one of their own, kind of a homegrown prophet, someone from the north. And clearly, the most notable thing for us as we read this first chapter is Hosea's family situation. It's the account of his marriage and his kids and 
in many ways, this is something that we don't get in any of the other minor prophets, outside of maybe somebody like Jonah. Like, we, we really just don't get a biographical sketch of any of the minor prophets. And even here with Hosea, this is about the extent of a biographical, biographical sketch that we're actually going to get. So, so even if you were here with us, think about Amos. Who was Amos, right? We, we know he was from the south, and we know that maybe he was like a farmer or a shepherd or something like that. But other than that, what do we know about Amos? How old was he? I don't know. Was he married? No clue. Did he have kids? We don't know, right? So it's, it's kind of unimportant. And, and in many ways, the prophet, in the case of somebody like Amos, the prophet must decrease so that the word of the Lord can increase. But here with Hosea, something else is going on. We, we get more insight into what's happening and into the purpose that God wants Hosea's life and marriage to serve, which is to be this metaphor for Israel's relationship to God. Look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take your, yourself a wife of whoredom. Some translations will read something like, go take yourself a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity, for the land commits great promiscuity, great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, guys, there's so many questions here. So many questions here that, honestly, we don't have a ton of answers for. Uh, the first question most people have is just, is this real? Like, is, is, did this actually happen? Is this something that God actually asked this guy to do? Or is this just some sort of a story? Is, just, is this like a narrative we find kind of in the middle of this that's meant to point us to God or point us towards the sin of Israel or something like that? What's going on? So to most scholars here actually land on this being an actual real thing, an actual account. And, and one of the big clues here is in verse 3 where it says, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Just the basic fact that the text records the name of his wife's father is an indication that this is not some metaphorical wife, that this is an actual person. Because any time in the scriptures where you read, this is so-and-so, the son or the daughter of so-and-so, the primary intention is to clearly identify the person, right? So it, it is intending to send this message that, that this is an actual person, and perhaps for anybody who would have been hearing this in Hosea's day, they would have said, oh yeah, I know who that is, or I know who her father is, or I've heard of that person before, right? There's the potential for something like that to happen. So, so we get a little piece there. So then the next question is, but why would God do something like this, right? If, if this is real, why would God have like a faithful follower, somebody who loves him, somebody who wants to be obedient to him, why in the world would he ask him to do something like this? And incumbent in that question is the assumption that this probably caused a lot of suffering for Hosea, right? That this was a tumultuous relationship, that this caused all kind of pain and heartache for Hosea. Did he really ask one of his prophets to marry a promiscuous and unfaithful woman? And since we've answered the question, yeah, it kind of looks that way, why in the world would he have Hosea do this? And yet, if you've read the Old Testament, the reality is that most of the prophets had incredibly hard lives 
because of what God had called them to do. I mean, God asked some of the prophets to do unbelievable things. Many of the prophets' lives were hard simply because of the nature of being a bearer of bad news, right? They're coming and they're telling the people things that they don't want to hear. They're telling them destruction's coming, or they're telling them that they need to repent of their sin, or they're telling them that if they don't turn, there's going to be famine or pestilence or whatever. And so, so often, this was the case with Amos, the people go, get out of here, man. Like, we don't want to listen to you. Prophets proliferated in the land, but many of them were false prophets. And sadly, during this time, one of the ways you could tell a false prophet was because they told people what they wanted to hear. The same thing is true today to some extent as well. The question is not, what do you want to hear in God's mind? The question is, what do my people need to hear, right? What will draw them to me? What will call them to repentance? So many prophets were just sort of on the outs because of the news that they came bearing. But also, God does things through the lives of the prophets that are designed to provide a living example, in this case, of of the nation of Israel's sin. For example, Jeremiah was told by God not to marry. And at one point in time, Jeremiah walks around wearing chains and bearing a yoke of wood. Um, Ezekiel was told not to mourn for his wife who had died. And at one point, he was commanded to cook his food over human waste as like a living example of the uncleanness of the nation and the way that they had given themselves over to other gods and had abandoned the law of the Lord. Most famously, the prophet Isaiah was commanded to walk around naked for three years, not only to in a sense, metaphorically, show the nakedness of the people in their sin, but also to show the shamelessness of the people as well in what they were doing. So Hosea is not the only one that we find in the story of Scripture whom the Lord asked to do degrading, humiliating things for the purpose of serving as a living metaphor for whatever God's message is. And with the prophets, especially Hosea, God's intention is not simply that their words would speak to the nation's sin, but that the people would be able to look at their life, at his life, at his marriage, at his children, and and see this sort of living example of what was going on. And he tells us from the beginning here, go take this person as your wife because the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. But still, there are questions. Was Gomer promiscuous simply before the marriage or also during the marriage? We don't really know. Were the children that she bore actually Hosea's children? Or were these children that came out of other relationships? That's not entirely clear. But we do see that either way, Hosea assumes the role of fatherhood, including the task of naming these children. And so, real quick, let's just kind of map out this family tree With Hosea, his wife Gomer, and then the three children that they have. The first one is a boy, and God says, call him Jezreel. The second one is a girl, and God says, 
to call her no mercy. Uh, most often we use the ESV translation of Scripture, um, but in some translations, and certainly in the original, this would have been a Hebrew word, and the word is lo ruhama, no mercy. And then finally, another boy, not my people, or in Hebrew, lo ami. So when you ask somebody what their little girl's name is, and they say, no mercy, do you think that elicits any questions? Do you think that that makes people stop and go, hmm, okay, tell me about that. What's going on here? Just like the marriage itself, the names of these children have purpose. Uh, The first one, Jezreel, is probably the most loaded of all of these because there's a lot of history behind this name Jezreel. First of all, this name means God scatters. God scatters. And the, the image here is that of a farmer going out to scatter seed. Or it could be interpreted God sows. God sows. Um, so that's, that's frightening in and of itself, right? This notion of God scattering anything. And yet what we know is through the prophet Amos that we just read, that is what is to come for the people of Israel. They will be scattered. There's a very real sense in which a Jezreel will happen for the people of Israel. But Jezreel in the Bible is actually a place. It's a, it's a valley, um, and there's a city within the valley called Jezreel. And it's the scene of many bloody battles in Scripture. If you go back to the book of Judges, this is where Gideon defeated the Midianites and the Amalekites. You fast forward, this is where King Saul is defeated by the Philistines in 1 Samuel. In Hosea, God says, name your son Jezreel because, quote, for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So, so that's, that's a little just glimpse of what I'm talking about when I say you can't just drop in on a book like this and expect to really actually understand what's going on. Because he's referencing here something that happened several generations before. And, and this has a past and a future connotation for Hosea. The past connotation has to do with this guy named Jehu. And Jehu was a king of Israel. Jehu was famous um, because he was commander in the army of the king that came before him, who was a man named Ahab, who was just renowned for being a wicked king in Israel. He's probably most famous for his wife, who was named Jezebel, and who led him astray and who led him into worshiping other gods. Um, But this guy Jehu was a commander in his army and opposes him and actually winds up defeating him in battle. And so a new monarchy is begun, a new line is begun, and it's the line of Jehu. And at the time that it happens, you know, the Lord basically is the one who puts it together for Jehu, right? He's the one who wipes out Ahab and Jezebel because of their sin, and he's the one who puts Jehu on the throne, and yet guess what happens? He just does the same thing, right? He just goes after false gods as well. When he became king, he actually had to kill 
all of Ahab's family, including 70 sons. And there is this famous scene where he decapitates 70 of Ahab's sons and he piles their heads up at the gate of the city of, you guessed it, Jezreel. And so God says, I will punish the house of Jehu. And guess whose line that is? Jeroboam. Jehu is the great-grandfather of Jeroboam II, who is king during the time of Hosea, and during the time of Amos, and during the time of Jonah. He says, I will punish this house. That's sort of the past connotation, but then the future connotation is, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And this will come to pass as well. As we've said, the Assyrians will eventually sweep in. They'll overtake Israel. They will scatter them. And the decisive battle would happen in what is known as the Valley of Jezreel. So put the metaphor together here. God says through Hosea's life, Israel, it's like I've been married to a whore. That's what my relationship has been like with you. I think of you as my wife, and yet you've given yourself over to other gods. So the offspring of this union will be scattered because I will have no mercy because they are not my people. Now, that's pretty bleak. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we get to this very last paragraph, and there's hope to be found. Look at verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah... And I will save them by the Lord their God. And then verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So if you remember in Amos, most of the book was negative prophecy, right? Israel, you've oppressed the poor. Israel, you've you've sold people for some flip-flops. Like, you've done all of these terrible things to crush and oppress others so that you can enrich yourselves. And so destruction's coming, exile's coming, and then at the very last part of Amos, the very last paragraph, there's, there's a little glimmer of hope where God says, but in the future... I'm going to redeem. And what we, what we said ultimately as we had dissected that was this is pointing us to Christ and to this new covenant that Jesus would establish through his body and his blood. And here in Hosea, we get a glimpse of that even just in the first chapter. Despite what's going on in Hosea's life, God invokes the words of his covenant with Abraham. Do you notice that? Do you remember his covenant with Abraham? Not only that he would give Abraham a son, but that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as what? The stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. You wouldn't even be able to count them. And God invokes those words here at the very end. They will be as numerous as the sand. You can't count it. So there's this glimmer of hope. And in this final paragraph, there's, there's, there's like a reversal of fortunes in a way. Israel will flourish. Those who were not children of God will be called children of God, and one person will reign over them all. Hmm, I wonder who that is. It's worth pointing out that in the hills on the north end of the valley of Jezreel is a little village called Nazareth. And much like Amos left us pointing ahead to Christ with Hosea, you get this similar messianic language 
the idea that there is one coming who can solve all of this, for whom this, this division is nothing. There is one coming who can take even people who are not children of God and make them children of God. And guys, isn't that our story as well? There's a sense in which we should read the prophet Hosea and look at our own lives and go, you know what, I'm a whore too. Some of y'all remember that old Derek Webb song, I am a whore, I do confess, I put you on just like a wedding dress and run down the aisle. And in that song, he was just talking about how in our religious culture today, we are so prone to use God when we think it will be expeditious for us, socially or otherwise. But the rest of the time, we do whatever we think's best. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. It wasn't as if they had totally removed Yahweh from their culture. They would still give him a little lip service. Oh, but we're also worshiping all these other gods as well and basically living life however we want to. Do we need to crush people so that we can enrich ourselves? No problem. We do what we want. And listen, if we aren't careful, we will fall into the exact same trap, using God's name when it pleases us while really looking to the material things of this world to save and satisfy us. You know what the Old Testament calls that? Taking the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's not about using God's name as a curse word. It's about taking on his name even if he is not really your master. Presenting yourself as one who is in Christ or one who is a follower of God because you believe it will benefit you in some way. I think this had a lot to do with Jesus' anger toward the Pharisees during his day. We might be inclined to just see that as like low-level hypocrisy, but there are certainly those who have taken the Lord's name on as a scheme to enrich themselves or puff themselves up or to hold power or gain power over other people. Those who believe aligning with Christ will benefit their social standing or make them acceptable to their family or to other people around them. This is especially true here in the South, and whether we realize it or not, we're swimming in this kind of Christianity around here. It's a Christianity where I know on some level what the Bible says and I can say the right things and I can take part in religious events, but in reality, Christ is not my king. He's not the master of my life. He's not, he's not the one whom I'm, I've given everything to. Like, there's no point in my life where I would go, I've been born again. I'm not the same person I used to be anymore. I'm a brand new person. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that if you have sin in your life, or if, if you're not perfect, then, then you've clearly taken the Lord's name in vain. No, no, no. Using God's name in vain is about presenting something untrue and inauthentic to those around you. It's saying one thing when in reality the opposite is true, and it's akin to lying, which in the scripture is often called bearing false witness, Right? Like, what is your life, wife, life a witness to? Like, if you, if you grew up in an evangelical tradition, it's more than likely you've heard a lot about witnessing, which I think we use that term to just mean telling other people about Jesus. But the genesis of that phraseology is about honestly and authentically presenting your experience to other people. Honestly and authentically presenting yourself 
to other people, being, being a truthful witness. If Christ has saved you, then you've witnessed something incredible. Like you've witnessed something worth talking about, and God delights in that, but he hates the opposite. When we co-opt his name or claim something to be true that is not in reality true, and we deceive ourselves, we delude ourselves, and that's exactly what Israel was doing. We'll use the name of Yahweh if it suits us, but we're also going to worship other gods. We're also going to crush the poor. We're also going to totally ignore his law. And, and, and friends, I would call you today to examine your heart. Like, is that a temptation that you also feel? To align yourself with him in a way that, eh, it's, it, seems, it seems like a good thing. I, I mean, I guess, I guess this benefits me in some way. To say something that is true of yourself, but, but yet to live a life that is not lived in submission to him, where he's not my king, he's not my master, I don't even think about him. I, like, I don't give any brain power to what does God want for my life, or what is he leading me towards, or how would he have me live? I, I do whatever I want to do, or I do whatever I see people around me doing. And yet what he has called us to is to completely reorient our lives around the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a gospel that says, you were not his people. You were not his children. And were it not for Jesus' sacrifice, his body and blood, you would have no hope. I would have no hope. And there is no other way to become his child. There is no other way, no other way for the people who were called not my children to be called children of the living God. Jesus Christ is the way. That is the hope of the gospel. So to present yourself as one thing when in, when in reality the opposite is true is to bear false witness about your life. And it is to take the Lord's name in vain. And if that's you, like people are leaving the church in droves today because they've tested the waters and they found it to be inauthentic, right? They, they've tested the waters and they've said, I meet all these people who say things that sound good, but when I actually live life around them, I'm like, they don't actually do any of this stuff. They don't actually live the way that they say. So what's the point of any of this? Maybe you've been in that boat before. Maybe you're in that boat right now. But there is another way, right? There is another way, and Jesus points to it in so many ways and words. We see it in the Beatitudes, this idea of meekness and humility, which just points to a genuineness and honesty about our lives. That if we don't know Christ, we say, I don't know him. I don't know if I want to know him. I don't know if I believe all that stuff. I have doubts. There's no shame in that. There's no shame in saying that. The shame is in lying about it. And yet, if Jesus has changed your life, why would you not talk about it? Why would you not tell other people about it? Why would you not try to show that kind of grace and love to other people? There's no disgrace in confessing your sins 
because we all have them. And yet Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the beauty of the gospel, guys. This is what it's all about. Jesus hasn't saved us so that we can live comfortable, middle-class lives where we go to church every Sunday and give him lip service, but yet nothing in our lives actually points to the fact that we believe the gospel to be true and have been forever changed as a result of it. If you go into your daily life and you are primarily steered and guided by whatever the norms or culture of your professional industry or your family may be, and, and you're not steered by the gospel itself, then things have to change. Things have to change because he's called us to so much more and he's died so that we can have so much more. Does that make sense? The result is just what can be called cultural Christianity, right? We participate in religious things. We identify with religious things. But am I really a Christian? If to be a Christian means to truly make Jesus Christ my king? I'll close with this. So often when we talk about faith, faith can be a nebulous term to people. Um, but, but I love the notion that possibly one of the best ways that we can translate the word faith into English, the, the biblical word pistis, is the Greek word in the New Testament. One of the best ways that we could possibly translate that word in today's world is the word allegiance. And it's this notion that we see throughout the scripture, this idea that God is a great king, right? And that what God most desires from his people is their loyalty. He desires our allegiance. He doesn't desire simply for us to claim him as our king. He doesn't desire simply for us to say, oh, I believe he's really the king. What he desires is a life that says, I believe he's really the king. And in the same way that he wanted Amos and Hosea and so many of the other prophets' lives to point to the truth of the message that they were declaring, what he was calling them to was to bear an honest witness. And he's calling us to the same thing. May our lives and our words actually mesh together. And may people come into the church, hopefully not just this church, and find a community where they're not perfect and there's doubt and there's struggle and there are challenges and yet people seem to want to do what they say and live what they claim. That's the hope. That's my prayer for myself, for my own life, for you guys, that that would be what people see when they look at you, when they look at me, and they look at us as a body, as a community of faith, something true and honest and real. Now, you better believe that's always going to be challenging. You better believe the enemy comes against that kind of stuff. You better believe just our own flesh and our world comes against that kind of stuff. And yet, that's what it's about bearing a true and honest witness of what I've seen and experienced and what is real and what is our only hope. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for your um, gospel. Thank you for the truth of your scripture. And even with a difficult passage like this, God, where we see something like the life of Hosango, man, what do I do with this, Father? What we recognize 
is that you have called us all to do hard things. Jesus doesn't mince words about how difficult it will be to follow him. And yet even in his day, even people who saw his miracles walked away from him because they were unwilling to give up the things that he called them to give up. Father, may we not make that mistake. May we not simply give you lip service or simply participate in religious events, but may we truly devote the whole of our lives to Christ who came and died and rose so that those who were not children of God might be called children of the living God. Father, we give you thanks and praise today for what you have done for us. Father, exercise from our lives any hypocrisy that might be there. Call us into humility and vulnerability with each other. Call us into realness. May we find freedom and the release of a heavy burden. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with us?